turn again, please, to our Bible reading in Acts chapter 16. <clears throat> Keep it open, Acts 16, verse 31. Last week we considered together the commencement of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 14. And I think that's a good starting point at the beginning of a new year for the congregation here. Because as Jesus started, I think so, we should start the new year afresh and anew. Remember after the imprisonment of John the Baptist and his martyrdom in prison, that of John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus, as it were, was thrust out into the public arena. And he came with the same message that John was put to to death with. John was beheaded because he preached the message of repentance and he dared to confront the king with his sin and ask the king to repent of his sin. Do not think that that message of repentance will curry any favour with the world of any age in which we live in. It certainly will not. So John lost his life and Jesus commenced his ministry where John left his ministry. And what did he preach? The message of repentance. And the continuity of that message is evidenced when at his ascension he commissioned his disciples to preach what? The message of repentance. And what are you and I commissioned to preach in our day and age? The message of repentance. And so we effort, we, we emphasized from the text that there's companions to repentance. And the companion of repentance is of course faith in Mark 1 and verse 14. There can be no true repentance without faith. There can be no true faith without repentance. The two things uh, go together. One theologian put it in the following manner. If if regeneration uh, pours a new principle of life into the heart, that must and will become evident in the works which proceed from the spiritual life. So what proceeds from it? There are two main things that proceed from it. Faith on the side of the mind and repentance on the side of the will. I think that is beautifully put. Faith on the side of the mind and repentance on the side of the will. We need to realise, of course, having said that, that all faith is not saving faith. There are all kinds of faith prevalent in the world and always have been. Sometimes they're divided up into various categories and we call them sometimes temporal faith. We call them historical faith. We call them miraculous faith. It's not my intention to go into descriptions and definitions of those categories this evening. They exhibit a form of godliness. They are all under the umbrella of common grace, but they deny the power thereof and the reality thereof in the heart and the life. These types of faith, uh, whilst they, they are for the common good. True biblical saving faith is differentiated and it is, a decline, it is marked out by certain features. And that's what we want to get to this evening. Nothing, brethren and sisters, is more important than the faith you profess. Nothing. For every Christian in the meeting tonight, the most important profession you'll make is your faith this week. For those that are unsaved in the meeting are listening in to the message uh, this evening, the most important thing that you lack is faith to profess. And so tonight we're going to look at this subject of what is true saving faith. 
from the Word of God. I'm going to reference to you quite a lot our confessional standards. Our own Westminster Confession, chapter 14, takes a whole chapter to do with faith. And there's some tremendous uh, truths in it that I want to share with you tonight. In order to be saved, you have to believe. Isn't that what Silas and Paul told to the Philippian jailer just as he was about to commit suicide and take his own life? He couldn't work at anything. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't bring anything. And what did they tell him? They told him in Acts, our scripture reading, Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, just simply believe, have faith on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So what type of faith is it in the Lord Jesus Christ that saves? That's fundamental and key to our understanding of of biblical Christianity and all of our hopes and aspirations for heaven and for home. What sort of faith is it that saves the soul? So let's look at the application of this and try to break it all down. Firstly, let's ask the question, who works saving faith in the soul? Who works saving faith in the soul? Uh, To listen to some preachers, you would think that faith is something that man can work up in his own heart and in his own life. It's as if if you try hard enough at it, you'll get it. Or if you put enough energy into it, you'll eventually produce it. You and I cannot produce in and of ourselves faith in our hearts. That's a humbling, a humbling thought for proud, arrogant mankind. It cannot be done. The Bible teaches that true faith is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. In Ephesians 2 and verse 8, we know those well-known verses, and and yet we, we don't really understand the full application of them. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, because it's the gift of God. True saving faith, as with all of salvation, is God's gift to his elect. I couldn't say it any plainer or simpler. True saving faith is God's gift to his church, to his elect. True saving faith is a direct result of electing grace. You know, sometimes in in the gospel, we're afraid to touch on these great issues of the sovereignty of God. But brethren and sisters, salvation is either of a sovereign God or else it's of the will of man. It can't be of both. It's of a sovereign God worked out in the will of man. And we read in Acts chapter 13 verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And then this little phrase has has stumped many people over the years. It says, and as many as were ordained to eternal life. What did they do? As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. I, I do not want you to run away thinking that you can get saved when and where and what time you want and it's just something that's down to your will. I I want to assure you tonight it's down to the sovereign will of God. Your salvation, my salvation is under God's sovereignty and it's under God's sovereign disposition to us. True saving faith, it is the work of the Holy Ghost. We touched on this this morning. We sang that great hymn of Wesley's. I, I always loved that hymn Charles Wesley put it. I, I, 
despite all the Arminian theology that he held as one of the greatest hymns in our hymn book, no man can truly say that Jesus is the Lord unless thou take the veil away and breathe the living word. Nobody can say Jesus is Lord and acknowledge him as Lord unless they know the work of the Spirit of God in their heart and life. And that's why Wesley made that a great appeal. Spirit of faith come down and reveal the things of God and make to us the Godhead known and witness with thy blood. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, No man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. The first time you breathed out that word Lord in prayer and from your heart meant it, it wasn't your work. It was the work of the Spirit of God in your soul. In 2 Corinthians 4.13, Paul spoke of that spirit of faith. And this is one of the proof texts in the Confession of Faith, chapter 14, verse 1. Because the Westminster divines, they understood this to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. Who works faith in the hearts of the unbelieving. John Gill, a great Reformed Baptist man, he said of it, Now of this spirit... The Spirit of God is the author. This is not of ourselves, of our own power. It's the free gift of God and a valuable gift it is. It's the operation of God and the produce of his almighty power. And of this Spirit of God in conversion is the powerful operator. Hence he's called the Spirit of faith. I, I marvel that without the work of God, the Holy Ghost in our hearts, none of us could be saved. If you're saved tonight, you are evident. You are the evidence here and on alone that the Spirit of God has been at work in our midst. Because if the Spirit of God had not been at work in your heart and in your life, you would not be in this gospel meeting tonight singing the praises of the Almighty. You would not have hopes and aspirations of heaven and eternity to come. This, the, the confession speaks in chapter 14 verse 1 of the work of the Spirit of Christ in hearts. Isn't that wonderful? That the Spirit of Christ works in our hearts. And it's the Spirit of Christ who works in the heart and then enables that heart to cry out, Lord, as the Apostle Paul did, Saul of Tarsus did in Acts 9, Lord, the first word he spoke, Lord, what will you have me to do? Why? Because the Spirit of God was in his heart, working in his heart. There in the dust of the Damascus road, God brought him down low. And in the dust he cried out, Lord. Who works this saving faith in the heart? It's God. It's God's great sovereign decree. It is the gift of God to his elect people. It is the mysterious work of the Spirit of God. And then Paul took up this inner working of the Spirit of God and he said this is the, the, the testimony, this is the evidence in the hearts of God's believing children that were born of God. Romans 8, 14, it says, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For we have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. 
And I want you tonight to look into your heart and look into your life. Does the spirit within bear testimony with your spirit that you're a child of God? We talked about a conscionable hearing of the word of God this morning. In your conscience tonight, do you have that inner witness that you're a child of God? Because that's the work of the Holy Ghost. Secondly, consider with me how saving faith is ordinarily, that's the operative word, ordinarily born in the soul. There's evidences that it was born otherwise because I think of Jeremiah how the Spirit of God met him in the womb and changed him in the womb. But those are the extraordinary, the ordinary way that God births faith in the soul. As Reformed Evangelical believers, eh, we believe, to quote our confession, that the Holy Spirit ordinarily works. Now, we don't disparage that work. You see, today, people... When you talk about things that are ordinary, no, no, we don't go to church to do ordinary things. We have to do extraordinary things. But our forefathers, they saw the dangers of all of that. And they they said, no, in our own confessional statement, the Spirit of God ordinarily works. There are times of revival, there are seasons of refreshing. But ordinarily, this is the way that God works, saving faith in the heart. How? By the ministry of the word. And what is referred to here is the preaching of God's word. I'll take you to those well-known verses in Romans chapter 10. If you go there just for a little moment. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 to verse 17. For with the heart, the Bible says, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Isn't this a very ordinary preaching service that we have described for us here. People listening, a preacher proclaiming, and God working. And then we read in verse 17, So then faith cometh. How? By hearing. We talked this morning about the hearing. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of the Lord. By the word of the Lord. Those divine to penned the confession they were unanimously agreed in this one thing. They were unanimously agreed that God works through the preaching of God's word. The church today is not in agreement with that. And the church today believes that we have to bring in all of these other innovations of the age. But brethren and sisters, I, I want us here and on alone to hold to those old ways and the ways in which we know that God ordinarily works, God ordinarily works through the preaching of the word of the Lord. And let's never tire of that, let's never veer from that, let's hold uh, tenaciously to it. God works through the preaching of the word. Let me quote to you some of these men, some of the divines who were part of that uh, Westminster Assembly. Anthony Burgess stated, the ministry, that's of the word, is the only ordinary way that God hath appointed either for the beginning or the increase of grace. Every time 
We come here to gather under the word of God. We have this hope. We have this assurance that there's going to be the beginning of grace or the increase of grace. The beginning of grace or the increase of grace. As the word is preached. William Greenhill, another member of the assembly wrote, Where the word is not expounded, preached and applied, the people perish. Where the word is not expounded, preached and applied, the people perish. I heard the Reverend Park quote Calvin at the Wicker of Prayer, wrote it down in my Bible because it just resonated with me. And Calvin quoted, he said this great quote, where the word is not preached, the people don't worship. And we ought not to think that way back in the 1640s in the Puritan times, there was no opposition to preaching. There was, you had the high church people, those archbishops, those bishops that were eventually going to topple the long parliament and all that went with it and they wanted to introduce high churchism again and they wanted to introduce sacramentarianism rather than preaching into the church and, and by and large they succeeded in the 1660s with the great disruption of the church when the Puritan preachers were put out of the church and all the prelates and priests were brought back into the established church once again. There always was opposition to preaching. And there always will be opposition to preaching. As I said this morning, it is the, it's the natural reaction of the natural man to what God has to say. But it should rejoice our hearts to know that despite the opposition, and don't, don't get discouraged, brethren and sisters, despite the opposition, the apathy, the indifference of the day and age that we live in, this is what God has pledged. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. God uses Bible-based preaching to begin faith, to grow faith, and to bring faith to its culmination when God will take those in faith to heaven and to home. The Holy Spirit takes the word proclaimed. And what did Jesus say he would do? He said, when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's the Holy Spirit who births faith in us. He is the originator of faith. The word that's used for reprove, we know, means to convict or to convince. And that's what we long for. We long for men and women, young people, to be convicted of their sin. That they're smarting under the law of God as it's preached. As the law of God is delineated and outlined, they know, I am guilty, guilty, guilty of all of the great commands of God's holy law. That's conviction. They feel the weight of the law. They feel the penalty of the law. They feel at any moment God could thrust them out into hell itself. That's conviction. And how we lack that conviction today. Faith is not just born in the soul under the preaching of the word. But I'm, I'm glad it's increased and it's strengthened. I think of that father, I was looking at him in my own study this week. In Mark 9 verse 24, he brought a son who was ill. And the disciples couldn't end for him. And he cried to the Saviour. And we, we read straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears. Lord I believe. Help thou my own belief. There's always this tension. We're living in a world that's full of unbelief. And though we're believers in an unbelieving world. We want to believe. And yet we know that even our faith at best is very weak. And we said to the Lord. Lord I, I do believe. And yet I battle with unbelief. 
Oh, let me encourage a believer as far as possible. Don't miss the preaching of the word because it's under that word. Some arrow from heaven will touch your soul. Some word from heaven will come to your soul and will just give you the right, just that right word, just that right encouragement, just at that time to strengthen you at your weakest moment. The Puritans quaintly put it about the Sabbath that the Sabbath is the market day for the soul. In years gone by, people went to the market and on the market day, that was the only day you could do your shopping. Remember, the, the stalls weren't open any other day. And you went to the market that day and you got your supplies in and those supplies were that, was, were, were, was that which was going to keep you alive. And the Sabbath is the market day for the soul. I know people, I know people here in Analog, and they'll crisscross the country to, to buy a, a tonic to make themselves physically better. I'm not saying that's wrong at all. But the Sabbath is the spiritual tonic for the soul. Don't miss the spiritual tonic that God gives you. And do, do not disparage or, or do not allow the devil to make you question the preaching. You mightn't get all the points down and you mightn't understand everything that's said. And you mightn't remember uh, what has all been said. And yet God will use what has been said to strengthen faith and to begin faith in the soul. Thirdly, let's consider what does saving faith then do in the soul? What does saving faith do in the soul? Well, it enables the soul to believe what's revealed in the word. You talk to a man or a woman without faith and take them to Genesis chapter 1 and talk to them about creation, how God just spoke the word and brought the world and all that is into being. And will they believe it? No, they'll not. You talk to a man or a woman without faith about the resurrection of the body and you know, if you can't believe creation, you can believe right throughout the Bible, right to the, the, the resurrection day. Because on that resurrection day, the trumpet's going to sound and the dead are going to be raised. The just are going to be raised to life from immortal and the unjust are going to be raised for the judgment. And those who have died, the billions of mankind who have died, they're going to be raised. Talk to a man that hasn't faith, will he believe it? No, he not. It's faith that enables us to believe what we hear and receive. True, saving faith, trust in the word of God. It is faith, but faith in this book. It's faith in this book. People say it doesn't matter what you believe. I'm sure you've heard that many times. As long as you're sincere. Well, that's not true. Because if you're believing what is not found in the Bible, you're believing something that can never save your soul because it's only truth that has been revealed in the Bible that's able to save your soul. Saving faith will then respond in different ways to the various passages that are found in the Bible. As we've looked at many different passages over the past months, it requires different responses. When we come to the commands of God, what does faith Require it, it requires that you yield to the commands of God. We're yielding to them. The thou shalt not are meant to be stopped at, stopped at and we're meant to yield to them. We, we tremble at the threatenings of God. Let us not play uh, loose 
with the judgment of God and with the threatenings of God's judgment. Let us not play loose with it. And God says the soul that sinneth it shall die, that soul will die. This is not just a reference to physical death, it's a reference to the second death, which is hell itself. We don't like hell today. If the church could airbrush hell out of the Bible, it would today. But it can't. Oh, the threatenings of a lost eternity. We tremble at them. And then we embrace the promises of God for this life and the life that is to come. So when we come to the word of God, all these various different aspects of God's word, the commands we yield, the the threatenings we, we tremble, the promises we embrace. But the confession, it lays great emphasis on the response of true saving faith to the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. Who is he? Well, he's the only redeemer of God's elect. It's not what we learn in the catechism. He alone can save the soul. He alone can save the soul. He who took unto himself sinless humanity, who was and is and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever, he alone can save you. What did he come to do? Well, to put it very simply, he came to live the life that you and I should have lived and couldn't live. He came to actively obey the law of God. That is his righteousness. He came to do all that our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed to do. And he came to do what they didn't do. That's his act of obedience to the law of God. But his passive obedience was he came to suffer the penalty of the law of God. And there on Calvary's cross something happened. He took our wrath. He took our judgment. He took our place. He died in our room and in our guilty stead. What did he come to do? Yes, be the example. You know the little bracelets that sometimes young people wear. What would Jesus do? That's okay to say that. What would Jesus do? But it's better to ask what did Jesus come to do? He came to die in the guilty room instead of sinners. The gospel tells me not what I have to do to be saved because I can do nothing to save my soul. But the gospel simply tells me what Jesus has already done to save my soul. That's all the difference. The gospel is not what you can do. The gospel is what Jesus has already done. And he's done it all, men and women. He has done it all. Just believe it. That's what Paul said to that old Philippian jailer. Just believe it. He had already heard it. I believe that Philippian jailer had already heard it. Because those men were put in prison because they'd been preaching in Philippi. He'd already heard of them at least. Heard from them, I suspect. And now he said to him, just believe it. And that's what I'm saying to you tonight. There's nobody in this meeting tonight who has not heard it. From knee high, you have heard it. And now the Spirit of God comes to you this evening. And the Spirit of God, I pray, impresses it upon your conscience. Just believe it. Just believe it. Accept it and receive it. 
What does the sinner do in order to trust? Well, God justifies the sinner who by faith alone just trusts in the perfect righteousness of Christ alone. I love that verse, Romans 3.25. So it says there, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. You know what that's teaching us? Faith is the instrument. Faith is the device whereby we appropriate Christ and we take him as our Lord and as our Saviour. We're not justified on the account of faith. We're justified through faith. Faith is the exercise on the part of man. It's not God who believes. It's you and I who have to believe. And the faith that saves, I just want to say to you, it's not a dead faith. It's a living faith. It's a faith that lives and will be seen and will be evident in society. Some people will put up their hand at a meeting, will sign a pledge in a meeting, made a commitment at a meeting, and they'll look back on that for the rest of their life and say they're saved, but there's nothing to say in their life that they are saved. But if you're saved, you'll see it in your life. Because the faith that saves is not dead. It's always accompanied by the living works. But I want to close out by saying finally to you tonight, why saving faith varies in strength in different individuals. I think this has always been a, a contended point and I think sometimes a, a point of discouragement amongst believers. Every new believer does not grow as they ought to grow because every child grows at a different rate. Your children might grow bigger and taller and wiser than my children ever will and vice versa and all of that. And it's just the same spiritually. This is a reality. This is reflected in the confession of faith. It says this faith in chapter 14, section 3, is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often on many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. <clears throat> the Bible talks about many different types of faith. Those that are struggling, uh, Romans 4, 19 and 20, we, we read here about Abraham that he was not weak in faith. So that means there was times when he was weak in faith. And we know there were times when he was weak in faith. When he lied to the powers that be about Sarah and said uh, that she was his sister, the half-fly is still a lie. And in order to cut, he was weak in faith. The father of all who believe was weak in faith many times. But this instance he wasn't. He staggered not at the promise of God, but was strong in faith. So we have weak in faith, we have strong in faith. Jesus spoke to those disciples in the middle of the storm, and the storm was howling round about them, and he, he spoke those words to them. He said, why are you afraid? And maybe that's what Jesus is saying to you tonight. And maybe you have your own personal storm, and it's raging all round about you, uh, and there, there's... A real fear has gripped and seized your heart and your life. And Jesus said to you, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? So we have weakened faith, we have strong faith, we have little faith. <clears throat> we think of how the Lord Jesus spoke about that centurion. And he said, I, I, I have not found so great faith, no, not in all Israel. That's amazing. We were looking with the young people on Friday night past and as we commenced the studies in James. My brethren, count it all joy 
when ye fall into divers temptations, that word divers just means various different temptations, trials. The word temptation does, does not always mean a sinful inducement to sin or an ensnarement. It can be a test. It can be a trial. It can be something that comes along your way because verse 3 tells us the trying of your faith. And maybe that's where you are tonight. You've got this weak faith. Maybe a little faith. And that weak little faith, though, has been assailed. And has been tried and has been tested. And you cry out to the Lord in the storm. And you ask the Lord for the strengthening of it. It's not if your faith is going to be tried, brethren and sisters. It's when. When it's going to be tried. And maybe the when is now for you. Maybe you've been tried and tested as never before. And you're feeling the battle of the day. I just take encouragement from this final section that we're assured of ultimate victory. We're assured of ultimate victory. I can't say every day I'm in victory. I, I would be been very untrue to you. And I don't think any of you could stand up and say every day I'm in victory. But every day I know Jesus has assured me of ultimate victory. Remember his words to Peter. He would fall, but not utterly fail. I take encouragement from that. He said, I have prayed for thee, Peter, that thy faith fail not when thou art converted. Strengthen thy brethren. He would fall. And oh, what a, a fall he endured. But he didn't fail. And through Christ he was victorious. And you're going through a testing, trying time tonight. I just want to encourage you of our ultimate victory in Christ. With a great high priest in heaven. And he's praying for you as he prayed for Peter. That your faith will not fail. And if he's praying for you, will you fail? Absolutely not. You will know the victory. Keep your eye on the Saviour. Hebrews 10.22 tells us about that full assurance of faith. We've looked at all these types of different faith. Now we're talking about full assurance of faith. And the full assurance of faith is that Christ is the author. He started it and he's the finisher. It's not to do with Ian Harris. He started it. He'll finish it. And through his grace alone, he'll finish what he started in my life. And I know, even though so many times I fear I'll fall short, I know that one day I'll cross the line and I'll enter in because I have that assurance of faith that he started it in my life and he's pledged to finish it. Is that your assurance tonight? I want to ask you as you leave the meeting tonight, what assurance do you have as you go out into the new week that lies ahead? What assurance do you have? If you haven't saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you might have everything, but you've nothing. You can have everything, every prospect. But if you haven't Jesus, you've nothing. May you come to know him tonight and love him.